When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Who says there's no such thing as second acts? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Bill Barker. Bill, how's it going? It's well, thanks. Good. Well, I know you like to keep an eye on the macro like I do. Uh, I heard you talk on the morning show the other day about the revised GDP. Today, we've got the PCE, the Personal Consumer Expenditures Index, uh, came out today right in line with expectations around 0.2%. This is, they call it, the Fed's favorite indicator. So, seems seems pretty good. Are, are we out of the woods? Can we just heave a sigh of relief? Uh, hikes are over. It's done. I could complicate the answer, but I'm just going to go with yes today. Wait, I want Why to not? complicate the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. It's a it's a complex world. Infinite uh, possibilities exist out there in the multiverse. Uh, but you know, inflation is now. If you go to your favorite uh, inflation nowcast uh, site, which is probably the Cleveland Fed. Um, you know the the numbers for November and for the fourth quarter, whether you're talking about CPI, core CPI, PCE, core PCE, they start with twos or threes, and it's becoming more twos than threes now. Yeah, and we all know the magic number is two. Yes, two point zero zero, two percent, two point nine. Not good enough. <laughs> Powell has been very clear on that, but. And and I think it's you know there's there's some discussion from some intelligent people about all right we ha- we got to get to two to establish credibility but you know maybe in the future we can talk about three like mm, yeah. let's not make two this this holy grail that uh, we always have to chase if if there's nothing particularly meaningful about two and three and the damage that you might do to pursue two is greater than the benefits anyway. Uh, this is all, as I said, the complicated, boring answer that uh, should have just been yes. It's uh, the inflation is at an acceptable level today, but for the declaration that it must be two. So uh, that's pretty good news, and the uh, interest rate is now expected, uh, you know, in the betting markets to not go up and to go down um, starting in the spring sometime. I'm a little less uh, less clear that that's going to happen. I definitely think that we're probably at the at the end of the rate hikes, but I, I don't know how fast we're going to start with with the cuts. But overall, it's been you know we're at the end of November. It's been it's been great. It's been you know it's been a really good month for for stocks. And we always hear about the Santa Claus rally. Do you have an opinion on the Santa Claus rally and that whole you know is that just something that we sort of attach to? It, I mean, I'm not sure that the data fully bears that one out. 
No, it's one of those things that's just got a name. Yeah. So people keep bringing it up. <laughs> I think. I don't think we just like to talk about Santa. It's fine. It's it's. I, I don't know. Did we did we start the Santa Claus rally? Is this part of it? Have we already anticipated it? You know, the, the Dow's hitting a, a 2023 high today. So I would say that uh, whatever rally you're hoping for has already been delivered by Santa, and you shouldn't ask for so many presents this year. You already. Got tons of them. That's that's what I would say. Is that, that sounds a little Grinch, but yeah, I'm, I'm reminding people of how much uh, Santa and or whoever else works with him has, has brought already. Well, we do start Black Friday earlier, so let's just start the Santa Claus rally earlier too. Speaking of other things that seem semi-mythical, uh, today is supposedly the first real delivery for Tesla's Cybertruck. So the media is just like going nuts about this. The actual event itself takes place, I believe, at three o'clock on uh, whatever we're calling Twitter now X. I don't know. I'm not so excited about the Cybertruck. I what, should we be? Will we be surprised? Will there be something amazing that uh, that Musk is going to pull out of his hat? You wish that I were uh, cool enough to have driven enough trucks to have an informed <laughs> opinion about. What this model would do? Are you are you such a cool person? Drive a lot of trucks? I don't drive a lot of trucks. Just just a couple, the one, couple, whatever. <laughs> I I tend to be a very small small car person. I used to have a smart car, so I'm I'm like the opposite of a truck person. A smart car, yeah. So like the, the kind of thing that trucks eat. Yes. Got it. Uh, the, uh, yeah, it's it's a very futuristic looking item. It's an interesting bet on uh, truck purchasers or traditional yeah. truck purchasers buying something that looks nothing like what they like and use. <laughs> yes. And I can't. Um, handicap whether that's going to work out. Now, Tesla's got a certain embedded, you know, clientele, early adopters. Uh, they've got lots of orders ahead of time. Uh, only you need to have thrown down a hundred dollars to have a reservation on this. So, whether those end up getting filled or not, I don't know. I think that uh, it's it's not something that the business is going to you know live or die based on the success of this uh, so I think it's yeah. additional potential upside there's a huge market there whether Tesla is addressing it in the right way is something for uh, cooler uh, truck driving people to opine upon yeah it doesn't seem like it it solves any problems that any truck drivers might have other than it like, Looks kind of cool and and maybe impervious to 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 corrosion and things like that, but maybe not. We saw how it worked out with the glass thing, so who knows? Yeah, who knows? I think it's it's a great media event. It it uh, gives uh, you know Musk hasn't been in the spotlight for several minutes now. <laughs> right. Actually, he has. He's never out of the spotlight, so no. I don't know that, that it just it, follows him around. Yes, that's where part of the Musk spotlight will be shining for part of today. He probably needs a little distraction. Well, let's let's keep it on cars and trucks because uh, GM released they released their updated guidance uh, yesterday. Uh, they announced 10 billion in stock buybacks, which means they they think the price right now is is too low. Uh, you discussed that on our morning show for Motley Fool members yesterday. They're also scaling back their robo taxi ambitions uh, with crews after after an unfortunate accident, and the CEO recently left. How should we be feeling about the the robo taxi thing in general are we getting close to to you know that not working out or 
I, th- I feel like they're not giving up on it fully, but they're definitely pulling energy and money away from it. They certainly are, and they're scaling back their timetables, and it's not really entirely up to them. Unlike some companies and their products, uh, this has a lot of regulatory hurdles yeah. to, uh, to you know to clear and to keep having to clear uh, every single accident that happens, and there will be more, and there have been some, uh, gets an amount of attention that is disproportionate to auto accidents that don't involve um, robo-driving, automated driving. So, I I think that the hurdles, regulatory hurdles, are, are very high. And, you know, it's, it's worth pursuing, but not pursuing at great cost. And I think uh, the costs are, are being scaled way back at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because uh, Ford released their updated guidance uh, today. Because both these companies, you know, they had to pause their guidance uh, because of the strikes. And the other thing that I'm kind of taking away from this is they're they're sort of digesting uh, that disruption, but they're also sort of they're they're changing their EV strategies a bit. But it's really confusing because they're kind of they're kind of trying to play both sides. They're they're scaling back some of the factories, but they're still saying you know this is the future. We're building toward it. This just seems like touches such a tough spot because I mean if you're Tesla, you're only in one direction. But if you're Ford or GM. You're doing, you know, you're doing gas powered. You're doing hybrid. You're doing EV. It it seems like a lot to straddle. Yeah, and I would imagine that uh, if you could track the enthusiasm of their discussion about EV adoption uh, on their own platforms, that it probably would have peaked uh, somewhere around the time that oil peaked. And mm-hmm. oil at seventy six dollars or whatever it is, uh, the second uh, compared to one hundred twenty three last uh, last summer, summer twenty twenty two, I think. Uh, that's just a different equation in terms of what the demand for EV is going to be. There's a there's a price at which it becomes much more interesting to car owners, and there's a price at which it, you know EV is is the cost upfront cost for the vehicle is not that interesting, depending on their usage and the the cost of of gas. So that is part of it, and. You know the demand increases slower than some uh, have predicted and hoped, uh, and and that's also you know, a function of of the price of oil in part, uh, also in terms of uh, government incentives, and and so right now not all of those uh, tailwinds are behind EV. Uh, they they were, and uh, they will be again. Uh, at some point, I, I'm sure that uh, oil will be higher at some points in the future than it is right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we know we know where things are going. It's just a question of when when we get there. And I think the other thing is the charging problem still has not been solved. The range anxiety thing is real. Uh, a coworker of ours went up to Boston over Thanksgiving, and like a eight hour nine hour drive actually took him like twelve hours, partly because he had to stop and try to find a charging station. So. I feel like until we solve that problem, it's not going to be full full steam ahead. There's still a lot of concern, I think, about that for for potential buyers. Certainly, uh, Americans are used to long distances compared to many other 
certain countries in terms of how far apart <laughs> families live and, uh, you know, the willingness of Americans to relocate to different parts of the country and have friends in different parts. So I think that the drive. Uh, you know, uh, distances are greater here on the average, um, you know, holiday trip and and for other trips. Uh, so, yeah, I think the range. You know, if, if they all could do, make up whatever number you want, seven hundred miles. Uh, I just made that one up. Now it's your turn. <laughs> make up a different number. <laughs> I think most people would be happy with five hundred. Five hundred. Okay. Yes. When they can reliably give you 500 miles under you know all conditions, uh, that that will help. That will help a lot. Uh, that's that is further. Uh, that's enough to cover all the driving you're probably going to want to do in most days. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I'm going to switch us to talk talking a little bit about tech. Not 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 either of us are, are not an expert on that, but there's something you said about the EV and the the sort of the hype cycle. And I feel like right now we're in a little bit of the sort of cybersecurity and AI combo hype cycle of we kind of have to go in this direction. Uh, companies have to spend on it. They've they've got no choice. I don't know. I've been through so many booms and busts that I'm very cynical. And one of the things I think about is that you don't ever know when the cycle is going to end. And so I'm thinking about cybersecurity. At some point, don't these companies kind of catch up with this and it becomes, and this sort of ever kind of escalating, like there's a hack and then we fix it and then there's another hack. Does that eventually stop? No. Does it get any better? Please tell me it gets better. Let's just dream it gets better. I don't. I I would think you know you're taking two concepts that have relation and and mixing them together makes for a particularly potent potential trouble. Uh, <laughs> cybersecurity and AI. I mean, you throw AI at uh, creating more security issues. It'll be used. Uh, you know, by good and bad, and yeah, and so you can use throw more AI to find more ways to penetrate to cybersecurity, and then you could throw AI at more ways to prevent that happening, and and that just keeps escalating. I think I, I think it's a it's a good field. I would say I, I can't imagine from the exquisitely little I know about cybersecurity, uh, that it can be cured. I don't think it can be cured, but I do think that it, it, I do think that the current sort of expansion of these businesses won't last forever because that's just it just can't. I mean, they can't there's only so far you can grow. But I think I think it's an interesting time to watch these businesses. The one that I'm sort of concerned about, because uh, not because of their numbers, but because their security breach is Okta, and they had uh, this breach they announced in. It happened in October. It we found out uh, yesterday. It's way worse than they thought. How do you deal with that moment in a business when there's this sort of like loss of faith and you don't know how big it's going to be? Preferably, you're honest about what you know, and I'm not sure. That Okta delivered the information in September in a way that is going to increase trust, uh, given what appears to be the scope of the problem here, and that is a big problem for yeah. a, a security <laughs> yes. company. And it's reflected in the stock. It's no higher today than it was five years ago, and business has uh, increased in yes. the last five years dramatically, uh, but not Okta's price. And that is that is on them. I think they have. Uh, 
you know, don't it doesn't appear to be a, a particularly impenetrable uh, cybersecurity uh, program that they offer. Uh, not not at this point. They've got work to do. Uh, in the second half of the show, uh, we've got a conversation between Mary Long and David Meyer about uh, businesses with second acts. And Salesforce kind of feels like one of those to me right now, because of course it started off as you know CRM database company. Its ticker is CRM. Kind of lost their way a little bit with so many acquisitions, uh, including Slack, which they still sort of haven't fully harnessed, in my opinion. Then they kind of got religion, gained financial focus. At the same time, the AI trend kind of hit and like, you know, really sort of gassed everything for them. And they were able to capitalize on that with their with their Einstein and with their data cloud. Stock is up about seventy percent of the year. I don't know if this is luck or skill. Does it even matter which one it is? Well, it certainly the skill would be the one you would want to choose in terms well, of yes. increasing your business over time. The 70% is a function of at least as much luck as skill, that being the bad luck of, of last year's returns creating yes. stock prices going into January 1st of this year that were you know ones that the, the entire industry has, has benefited from. So, I think with Nasdaq's up maybe 36% uh, as of sometime today from the beginning of the year, uh, Salesforce at 70% uh, has both outperformed and probably underperformed last year. I don't have the number in front of me on what they did in terms of the stock, uh, but I think that that was part of it. And then so that's that's a you know part of the cycle that you get into with with any investment in the market, uh, but. If they stay away from the kinds of acquisitions, major acquisitions at premium prices, which Slack seems to be an example of, yeah. that was not something that the market wanted to see more of. Uh, they seem to have heard that and adjusted toward what is something relatively new, which is to focus on profitability rather than growth. And it's nice when you have the levers that they have, the size that they have to say, well, let's just get better at margins and to see dramatically improved profitability from pursuing something today that you haven't been pursuing, you know, previously. Yeah, I think I think they were able to move really quickly into into the AI space uh, because they were well prepared, which was helpful. With Slack, it's interesting to me because uh, you know uh, they they just went through another CEO switch. They're uh, Previous CEO wasn't wasn't there even a full year I think before she went went on to uh, went on Bumble. So um, what do you? Th- I, mean, I love Slack as a tool. We use it here at the Fool. I want to see it integrated into things. I'm not sure that they've fully fully figured it out yet. What do you think? I you know I I am one of those people that doesn't see Slack as all that much more valuable than. The things which preceded it, including email, uh, yeah. and that a little bit more valuable. And I could probably be better in my my usage of it. Uh, it's it's here for us, but uh, I, you know, twenty eight billion for it seems bizarrely high uh, to me. And I th- I think that's that was a function of you know the. The prices back in at that point in time, uh, and as you say, it, it doesn't seem to have been integrated in a way that makes it uh, indispensable at all. I'm not sure it's if it's indis. I think it's 
it's certainly the idea of it is indispensable. Whether Slack itself is, well, who knows? I, well, I think that you know there are competitors that do things which are probably a very competitive. I don't know what the moat really is here. There's some switching costs, but they don't seem all that great to me. If we just used a different system, people would have to create the channels that are created now, uh, and some of the conversations historic would be lost in the process. But it doesn't seem, because of the ease of use of both it and its competitors, that the switching costs are enough to yeah. justify, as I say, the, the price. Look, it's certainly worth something. Um, just I don't, I don't think it's worth the price they paid. We will always find a way to communicate. Thanks for breaking it down with me today, Bill. Thank you. Ricky Mulvey with Motley Fool Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado, and tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. I'd like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport. The analysts you hear on the show have a whole other day job, providing premium coverage and recommendations for the Motley Fool's suite of stock investing services. We're giving our listeners a discount on Motley Fool's flagship service. It's called Stock Advisor. If you're interested in more analysis from our team, two stock recommendations per month, and access to Stock Advisor's full scorecard of companies, visit www.fool.com slash MFM discount. Once upon a time, BlackBerry and Garmin were at the top of the world. Then came the iPhone. Mary Long and David Meyer talk about two very different turnaround stories and lessons learned from each that investors can apply to stock hunting today. David, I've been thinking a lot about the early 2000s. Back then, when I heard cell phone, I thought BlackBerry or Motorola Razor, but that's a different story. <laughs> when I heard GPS, I thought Garmin, and I have very vivid memories from the back seat of my parents' car to prove it. Today, both of those companies, BlackBerry and Garmin, technically live on, but in, I'd argue, very different ways than they once did. I want to talk about that transition, that second act of each company. So first, let's hop in the time machine. Let's go back to the early 2000s and and talk a bit about that first act of each company. Way back when, what made each company so great? So a lot was happening in the 2000, early 2000s, a whole heck of a lot in terms of technology. And BlackBerry was at the forefront of secure mobile communications. Basically, what they've their their claim to fame at the time was you as a business executive and all your employees could communicate back and forth securely 
No one was going to interrupt your message. No one was going to steal anything from you. If, if only if you used a BlackBerry mm. and, and they made a huge name for themselves in that. And, but if you go over to Garmin, Garmin has a little bit of a, we'll call it a less sexy uh, beginning. They wanted to help planes navigate uh, through the air better. And so they were at the forefront of GPS enabled devices. They started with airplanes, they started with boats. Their first customer was actually the military. They have come to very different places in their life, <laughs> as we'll get to. So maybe our best move is to get the bad news out of the way first, because as you said, both these companies ended up in pretty different spots. So we'll start with BlackBerry. In 2007, 2008, they had a market cap of $83.2 billion. Today, that's $2 billion. Does not take a pro to understand that that is a bad, bad slump. <laughs> They're also no longer a mobile phone maker. Instead, they specialize in enterprise mobility management suites. <laughs> Can you translate, A, what that means, and then talk a bit about why, why and how this pivot happened? Yes. So that is a fancy way of saying cybersecurity <laughs> uh, with an emphasis on what we'll call what is called endpoint security. And if we think about it, it's actually not a bad pivot for them because again, what they became successful at was securing mobile devices. The, you know, there were tons of phones out there and they made sure that no one could get into them and no one mm -hmm. could steal data from them. That's exactly what endpoint security is. The problem is, is that pivot happened way too late. That's a mature part of uh, cybersecurity. There's plenty of competition uh, within there. And as you and I have talked about before, when you get a one-stop shop like a Palo Alto who says, by the way, we'll throw in endpoint security <laughs> as a part of the package, it's difficult for them to uh, you know, take and be, take what they've been, been successful at and retransfer that into um, a, dif a different market. And, and essentially, that's the issue. They have not been able to actually pivot into something new or mm -hmm. an extension of their, uh, or, or, or pivot successfully into an extension of their technology. As of the most recent quarter, 59% of BlackBerry's revenue, so $79 million out of $132 million total, came from the cybersecurity portfolio. Yeah. Is there a world, we've been talking, they've been talking about this turnaround for forever, but is there a world in which this company comes back from the dead by becoming a more legitimate or a more serious player in the cybersecurity market? So I won't I won't go so far as to give it a hundred percent no. Like there's no chance that this is yeah. going to happen. But again, it's very difficult. They're late to the game. They're coming at it uh, without a without the benefit of having uh, proper sales force, proper marketing. There's you know there's they're just the current that they're swimming against upstream is just so fast that I just don't see it happening. Okay, so now we'll go to a happier story. <laughs> Garmin leaned into what it knew well and has become, I would say, a premier company for GPS-enabled navigation, communication devices. They make fitness wearables, chest strap heart monitors, fish finders and sonar applications, aviation navigation tools, auto infotainment systems. The list goes on. It's pretty extensive. In 2008, right around the same time that smartphones and the ubiquity of Google Maps were starting to take place, 
Garvin was effectively declared dead in the water. Yeah. All of those trends did not paint a pretty picture for its future. November 2008, Garmin's trading for about $17 a share. Today, it's about $120, so up just over 7x. Much prettier story, happier story than what happened with BlackBerry. How did this turnaround happen? So, this is a really interesting question because one, this turnaround took a long time, and two, it was not glamorous at all. So let me let me let me give some context about what was going on. You're exactly right. G- uh, Garmin, known for GPS, was really seeing tremendous sales growth during that time, and then more and more people got into the GPS business, mm-hmm. and that had an impact on Garmin, as one would expect. Um, we have to remember Garmin. Garmin wasn't in the business of selling a smartphone or selling a you know a smartwatch as we as we know it today, right? They had their devices. They had the backing of their GPS, their lo- GPS location based technology, the software that they had developed, uh, the maps, the mapping technology of how to use that. Um, and they were figuring out other things that they could do as an extension of of their brand. They were just getting into wearables. They, you know, they but they had the base of the um, the aircraft market uh, GPS location, as well as marine the you know, boats and things like that. And quite frankly, the biggest the biggest thing that management did was not do something stupid. Mm. So, what do I mean by that? The company let their sales actually shrink. They didn't, they, and some of it was market forces, but what they did was they made sure that their company was generating cash. And all throughout that time, they were paying a dividend and they were raising their dividend. So, let's think about that for a sec. Here's a technology company that did not go out and make a whole bunch of acquisitions with the capital that it had. It started returning capital to shareholders and then started thinking about, okay, let's try this. Let's try this this mm-hmm. product. Let's try that product. Let's see what catches on. Where 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 else can we extend our technology base into? And slowly, and by slowly I mean like over a decade. Mm. They just kept kept at it, kept going and going and going, and whatever money they didn't need, they returned to shareholders. This is the most, again, this is the most unglamorous turnaround you have ever seen, <laughs> but it worked. And the way it worked because the business stayed healthy. Are there any, this pivots away from BlackBerry and Garmin, are there any companies you're looking at today that are in the middle of a turnaround and that could kind of go the way of either of these companies? Oh yes. So uh, there's, I got, I have, I have three that I've been looking at uh, for for a little while, and they're in different stages, and and I look forward to talking a little bit more about them. So the first one is ZipRecruiter. This company has been tele uh, communicating with its shareholders, like, look, job listings are down. Companies are pulling their job listings. That's hurting our business. Uh, the stock has the business has suffered. The stock has suffered. I'm looking at that as one potential turnaround. Another turnaround, uh, a company that I've been very familiar with, is called Everbridge, and what they do is they put out emergency com- uh, communications. They have software that allows 
businesses and municipalities and things like that to say, hey, there's an issue. You all need to know about it. And here's what you need to do about it. Mm-hmm. Their CEO ab- abruptly left <laughs> and basically forced the company into a panic. Mm-hmm. So they've also had some follow-on issues with that, but that's a little bit of a different turnaround. Teladoc is another one that I'm looking at. This is a company that basically started pioneering, right? Telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started making a whole bunch of acquisitions. Like we're going to get big. We're going to c- cover all the healthcare verticals. And they like that just stopped working. Now I still believe in telehealth. I think it is part of the future, but the question is how long, like what has to happen in order for Teladoc to turn its business around and be successful? So those are, those are three types of turnarounds. And I think you're probably going to ask me like, what's the difference between the three, right? What am I looking for? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like it's one thing we've been talking about Blackberry and Garmin. It's one thing to look back after 10 plus years and say, oh, this is why one succeeded and the other just couldn't make it happen. Yes. When you're in the middle of it, <laughs> what are you looking for? Yeah. So let me quickly walk through uh, you know, what I'm thinking for each. So I think with, with the ZipRecruiter turnaround, that's probably one that's most straightforward, right? You're gonna you we'll get labor market data, we'll get communications from management that say, hey, you know, job listings have started to return, right? It that's a that's a very simple way of looking as is ZipRecruiter turning around. I don't think this business is damaged. Like it's there's no one in there who's who is disrupting ZipRecruiter at the time. We just need the macro data that influences ZipRecruiter's revenue to get better. So we can see that. We can see that one happen. So we're just waiting for the data to get better. Mm-hmm. Right. Or or since we're confident that's what it is, we're waiting for the price to get like super cheap. Right. Then I'll, okay, I'll, I'm willing to take a risk and wait six months for the data to get better or 12 months or whatever. But it's probably not a 10 year venture. Everbridge, oh my goodness. So they had to find, they, right? So what did they have to do? They had to find, they had to get an interim CEO. Then they had to find a new, had, had to find a new CEO. Then they had to figure out, well, is my, da- is my business, has my business been damaged? Uh, in any way, because like maybe some potential customers decided not to do some deals with us because we didn't have a CEO, you know, a regular CEO at the time. So this one's a little more difficult. I have to figure out has this company's business, you know, its business model, is it, has it been damaged to the point where like people are saying, no, we'll look for different alternatives or can they get their magic back, if you will, and really start growing? Probably, you know, so we're talking here, maybe you know, maybe a two to three year time frame. So you know, ZipRecruiter six to twelve months, Everbridge maybe two to three years, Teladoc like is telemedicine has that been commoditized? Mm-hmm. Like is is there basically the answer or what uh, it, what you can infer from a question like that is will ever will Teladoc ever get its mojo back? I don't know. Like this could take a very long time. And the stock could really do nothing, or even, in fact, you know, decline further if there's difficulties along the way. So, real quick to bring this to a framework, it depends on the situation. Right? Mm-hmm. Is it is it is there a is there a immediate near term catalyst that I can see? Um, you have to ask how bad how badly has a, a, a company's business model been damaged by a situation. 
and then with some that's the Everbridge and then with Teladoc is this going from you know a disruptor basically into a business that's been commoditized at which point like the thesis is broken like you just you, there's no amount of time that I'm going to wait I'm just going to move on to the next thing As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.